This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and thanks again for joining us. Remember, you can find all the Ringler Radio shows on our website, ringlerassociates.com, or on the LegalTalkNetwork.com. And don't forget, you can get CLE credit for listening to Ringler Radio on Law.com's CLE Center. Well, today we're coming to you from beautiful downtown Chicago and the 2007 Annual Convention of the American Association for Justice. And uh, if any of you have not been to Chicago lately, I would encourage you to come. It's uh, really uh, looking bright and shiny and uh, the mayor here has done a great job, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Well, joining me today as my co-host is a recent addition to Ringler Associates, Don Engels. Don's in our Chicago office, and his past experience of assisting individuals with needs analysis and financial planning have proved invaluable in designing and implementing uh, a lot of different structure plans for his clients. And uh, Don, we'd like to welcome you to the Ringler family, and welcome to the show. Larry, thank you very much. And uh, I don't think you had to travel a lot to get here, did you? No, a uh, short cab ride, which was, uh, which was nice. <laughs> yeah, better than planes. And uh, I'd like to welcome also our special guest today, Attorney Paul Wolf. Uh, Paul is the founding partner at the firm Mitchell, Hoffman & Wolf in Chicago. He specializes in plaintiffs' catastrophic injury and wrongful death cases, including automobile accidents, excessive force by law enforcement. That wouldn't happen here in Chicago, would it, uh, Paul? Excessive force by law enforcement. Unfortunately, it does. Okay. Construction negligence, premises liability, and medical malpractice. And welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, today we're going to discuss a couple of interesting topics, and that is the whole area of legal accountability. And we're also going to explore the various cases that uh, Paul Wolf is working on uh, and also get his overall perspective on uh, work as a plaintiff attorney today. It's, it's a different world than it was years ago. Well, one of the main topics of conversation uh, in, in a lot of different arenas is accountability and legal accountability. Nobody seems to want to take the blame. And, uh, Paul, give us a, start out by giving us a perspective on what you mean by accountability and kind of then take it into the perspective of uh, injury and death cases. Well, first of all, no one seems to want to admit that they did anything wrong or that their negligence caused an injury, uh, whether it be the named party, the defendant, or uh, his or her defense attorney, they will point to everywhere and anywhere except to themselves. Uh, A perfect example, uh, I deal with it all the time. Many of my cases involve auto accidents, and one in particular, there was a car uh, that was being test-driven by my client, and the brakes were not working. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, the brakes were completely out. And uh, my client took a test drive, took it up to about 40 miles an hour, which you're allowed to test the overdrive, then proceeds to put the uh, brake pedal on, and it goes flat to the floor and no brakes. And he proceeds to crash into the end of the track. The defense in that case, and it was clear that they had notice, 
that there were no brakes in that car, and they just failed to either warn about that car, put a little note, even though they warned about all the other cars, whether it be an engine brake, brakes didn't work, uh, doesn't go in reverse, etc. Right. They didn't warn about this aspect of the car, and my client had no reason to put the brakes on prior to test driving it. So they blamed him for not testing the brakes because he should have anticipated that the brakes could not work. And um, the other aspect in which, again, they failed to admit their accountability is they also blamed him for jumping out of the car just before impact. Uh, to, avoid, to avoid injury. Right. Yeah. Now, obviously, from a legal standpoint, both are completely related. You cannot criticize someone for not reacting the way you wished that they would react. Um, and they lost the case, and, and uh, they had to reasonably compensate my client for his injuries. But generally speaking, across the board, defendants will try to avoid responsibility, whether it's on the negligence side or on the damages side. If someone has an injury, it was caused by something else. It was pre-existing, or they're exaggerating. And unfortunately, it's not anymore. It doesn't seem to be whether or not justice has been acquired, but rather who can strategize more, who can pull a fast one. And that's how things have changed, unfortunately, in, um, in the law. Paul, you're a, you're a plaintiff attorney now, but before, be, before becoming a plaintiff attorney, you were a defense attorney. Can you tell us your experience from, from both sides of the fence? Well, you're talking about accountability again, yes. I presume. Yeah. Um, I think uh, to a certain extent it applies to plaintiffs. For example, you know, the pedestrian that trips and falls or slips and falls and injures himself or herself, I mean, there has to be accountability, and there never is. A, the plaintiff must look and beware. Um, I mean, if I'm walking down the street and there is a crack or there is a hole, I have an independent duty to look out. I mean, this is... In today's day and age, you should anticipate that there are going to be cracks, that there are going to be holes, that there are going to be dangers. Just like when you're crossing the street with a walk sign, you must look for cars. However, again, there are certain circumstances where that does not apply. For example, if I'm in a store and I'm turning the corner, and the first step I take around the corner, there happens to be a wet floor, and there's no warning, I was not given the opportunity to see that myself. That's a perfect example of the plaintiff really is not accountable for that act. That's really a defendant's act. It was a hidden type of danger. So, I mean, we do have that failure to, to, to fess up, to, to admit you were wrong on both sides. But I think the opportunity is more often for the defense, and they have, they have accepted that opportunity all the time. You know, it's interesting. It's, we're almost talking about human nature you know i mean husbands have been blaming wives for years for you know you, you told me to turn the wrong way on the street i mean there have been this this there's always been this propensity to uh to have to find someone to point to because it can't be your fault you know that that's been that that psychological thing that we've gone through but let's talk about defense attorneys for example their job is to fight hard for their clients and to work to absolve them right from that responsibility Yet, at the same time, they may know very well that they caused the problem. So it's almost like a, a, a defense attorney taking on a, a criminal client that they know is guilty and trying to you know, use the legal process to get them off. How do you reconcile the concept of being accountable for something with also having your legal obligation to, to, to do what's best for your client? 
Well, like anything, there's a, you know, a certain yardstick and there's certain area where you just don't step over. And when clients start to fudge, misrepresent, not tell the total truth, I think you have now reached the point where you're, you're no longer just defending. Now you are abusing the justice system. Yes, you're supposed to defend your client. Yes, you're supposed to prosecute on behalf of the plaintiff as, as, as well as you can. But you've got to look at the facts, and you can't go beyond what is reasonable. I, I have a case where a, a man is driving his car down the street at, a, at the normal speed limit, and someone comes off a stop sign and gets hit. Clearly, it's the person who comes off the stop sign in front of him and doesn't yield to the, uh, to the car driving down the street. It's clearly that person's fault. But yet that person tells the insurance company, who then relays it to the defense attorney, that my client was speeding. Most likely what really happened is she did not see my client until the impact occurred, and she formulates in her own mind, he must have been speeding. Because I will ask her, and it's no surprise, ma'am, how often do you try to jump out or drive in front of a speeding car? (laughs) People don't do that. So she obviously didn't see it. But again, um, I think you are correct that there are various layers of why people don't tell the truth or misstate the the facts or blame someone else is because um, it's a way of, of... being more secure with oneself. Exactly. You are admitting a failure. But I would suggest that with the more, the the cases that the injuries are much more severe, there is a uh, level of guilt on the part of the defendant in having caused these injuries. And they don't want to have to face that reality that they were the reason that this person is catastrophically injured, going to be disabled for the rest of their lives. Paul, with cases involving minors or people with disabilities, there are. Do you, do you believe that there are attorneys who don't do everything that's necessary for their clients in preparing a case and negotiating a case and settling a case? Well, in the context of structured settlements, uh, clearly there have been cases that have been settled on behalf of minors that um, a plan was not formalized uh, in the sense of what is needed to secure this minor for the rest of his or her life, whether it be for medical care or educational purposes. I've seen many cases, unfortunately, where there's a settlement, and yes, you need probate approval. Uh, In other words, the court must agree to the settlement. But the next step is to have the settlement include a structured settlement. So when that child uh, becomes 18 and and is now entitled to that money, doesn't all of a sudden get $50,000, $100,000, $500,000 in cash. Because it is my experience, and I think uh, I don't believe anybody would disagree, when a child, a teenager, will spend the money. They will never have the money. Parents, friends that have never known the child for years, uh, haven't seen the child for years, all of a sudden join the flock. And within a year, all the money is gone. Uh, By allowing a structured settlement, you can set it up so the child gets some money payments over a year, whether it be once a year, twice a year, three times a year. If they're going to, if you anticipate that this is the type of child that's going to go to college, then you want to formulate, formulate a plan that when she or he enters college, she'll have money to pay for the tuition. There'll be some money for expenses, for room and board, for books, etc. cetera. Uh, if it's medical care, you have to have it set up so there's medical care over a lifetime. 
what we must understand is the goal, and of course we're talking about those minors or persons that aren't so disabled that all they have is medical care. We're talking about those people that can actually function to a certain extent normally in our life, in our society. Uh, This is not to replace a job. Even if they do get millions, it is to provide them security for the loss of a normal life that they had, for the things that they can no longer do. But we want to instill upon these minors that when they're 18, yes, you're going to get some extra money over your lifetime, but you still have to get a job. You still yeah. have to function and, and participate in society. Yeah, you certainly don't want to be a deadbeat. And that's, uh, and, and that's great that you take that interest, too, and um, any clients and think it through that much. Exactly. Well, thank you. And, you know, and the amount of money that is generated from these structures, I mean, um, I've used Ringler years ago. I've I've used them since, I think, what, 15 years ago. And uh, I now work with you, Don, and you're part of the Ringler family. And I I have a case where a a girl got a $1.5, 1600000 $1.6 and we put it in a structure, and over her lifetime, she's going to get about $8 million. Well, you know, we might talk about some of those specific cases in a little bit, but Don's question and your answer on structures raises another broader issue, and that is to what extent is a plaintiff attorney accountable to the client to make sure that they're recommending a structured settlement and that they're involved in, to some degree with their own financial planning for that client? What's the accountability of the plaintiff attorney in that case? Well, from my perspective, and I'm not suggesting from a legal mm-hmm. point of view, but I would think from an ethical point of view that uh, you have an obligation to assure that this minor is not just going to get a boat full of money upon her uh, reaching majority, but rather that she's going to have money spread over her life so she can be financially secure or secure for any medical care and treatment that they get. Well, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I've run into certain plaintiff attorneys in my career that have said, look, the money is not my responsibility. That's someone else's responsibility. I, I'm there to get them the result, and that's it. I don't worry about that. And I think that's a big mistake, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you think the same. And way. I would suggest that it is their responsibility. Good. Good. I'm glad. Well, Paul, you know, you've done a lot of, had a lot of cases uh, involving uh, very interesting, uh, you know, results. And one of the cases I I understand was a little girl who had a pre-existing brain injury due to the shaken baby syndrome. And then later had it, was in an auto accident. Uh, That must have been an interesting case of where did the injury come from? Did it, was it the auto accident? Was the shaken baby? How did that all come out uh, in your case. Well, there's a perfect example of the earlier topic we yeah. were talking about, accountability. Yeah, exactly. Um, clearly, this this little girl was severely injured, and uh, clearly, uh, at least for the immediate uh, injuries that she sustained, they were related to the accident, but the defense chose to argue the pre-existing um, injuries. She had actually two episodes of shaken baby syndrome uh, previously and had uh, gone a couple years with cognitive issues, uh, delayed developmental issues, but she seemed to recover quite well um, to the chagrin of the defense because she was actually quite normal at the time of the accident, and then she received a severe open head uh, open head injury, and she suffered TBI, traumatic brain injury, uh, among other uh, uh, injuries throughout her body. And uh, what we did, because we anticipated, again, because it's the rule rather than the exception that the defense will try to point to everything. So I had already figured out that 
you know, when this case starts, they're going to point to this pre-existing condition. So I had her evaluated it, evaluated and turned it around uh, and was able to argue, was able to argue uh, successfully that, in fact, uh, this subsequent injury not only created a new set of future injuries, but as actually exacerbated any pre-existing future risk of injuries. Hmm. In other words, the only thing they could really argue, because clinically she seemed okay, was that once you get into the executive functions, in other words, as we get older, we now have to do more complex things. We get into college, we get a job, quite different than when we're younger. Sure. They were arguing that these pre-existing injuries would, were, were risk to the cognitive executive functions of this child as she goes older. Well, what I did is I guess, okay, let's say you're true. Same has got to apply to my accident, the one that I sued for, and it's going to make worse any pre-existing risk. And they realized that um, they were really, they they had no chance, and and, uh, a settlement was reached, and this young girl um, is taken care of for the rest of her life. Well, that's great. You know, it's all it, we always talk about the so-called eggshell claimant when when the claimant is injured and they're, they're but they've had a shaky past. No pun intended. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's tough to figure out where all the, the the nuances of where the injuries came from. But to be when the end of the day comes, you get the claimant as you find them. And if that if that injury is there and it was pre-existing and, and it's been aggravated and exacerbated, someone's got to pay. True, uh, but you do have to prove that the new injury did cause uh, different injuries, mm-hmm. um, and I think we were able to do that quite successfully. Well, that's why you're the lawyer and I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> this this was one of the most complex medical uh, issues that I've ever had because it did deal with various issues of the brain, cognitive functions, mm-hmm. future cognitive functions, um, and you know that you can hire an expert if you're willing to pay them, to say pretty much anything you want, unfortunately. And that's the subject of a whole nother show, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, let's take a short break right now, and let's hear from some of the folks who make Ring the Radio possible. But when we come back, we'll get some more thoughts from our special guest, Paul Wolf, from right here in Chicago, and our guest host, Don Engel. This is Ringler Radio, Internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $18 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Ringler Associates. The only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities. 
including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, your host, and I'm joined today by attorney Paul Wolf, founding partner at the firm Mitchell Hoffman & Wolf LLC from right here in Chicago. And my co-host is Don Engels out of the Ringler Chicago office, uh, also right here. Where, where's that office, uh, Don? What street is that on? Clark Street. Clark Street. 20 North Clark. Terrific. Well, Paul, you're handling a, uh, a first impression case involving a pregnant woman who was involved in an auto accident. Her unborn child died not as a direct result of the accident, but as a result of poor choices she had made as a result of injuries from the accident. And that's quite intriguing uh, when I read that. Can you tell us about the case? Yeah, and let me just clarify the circumstances. It's not that she made poor choices. is that she was left with three choices all bad. Oh. And those three choices, which were all bad choices, uh, were a result of the defendant's negligence. Uh, my client was pregnant, three months pregnant. She was a passenger in a car, and a defendant ran a red light um, and uh, collided with their car. She sustained fractures of her pelvis, very bad injuries. And when she arrived at the emergency room, they did um, x-rays because they realized she was pregnant, and also she had fractures of the pelvis. And she was given three choices. She could have immediate surgery with the pregnancy, and it was pretty clear that the baby would have um, exposure to the x-rays and would have damage. Or she could delay it for three months and have the surgery on her pelvis and the a drug, uh, the radiation exposure would be lessened, mm-hmm. but they couldn't guarantee the baby would be okay. Or three, she could have immediate surgery and terminate the pregnancy. And understand that if she did not have immediate surgery, even if she waited the three months, her future well-being would have been drastically different. She would never have walked normally. In other words, the delay would have made would have they probably would have had to re-break the bones and do a surgery, which the outcome would have been worse. No question about wow. that. Yeah. Right. Tough, so choices. She, tough, Very choices. tough choices. Tough choices. And um, because the doctors, and understand this was at a hospital that doesn't allow elective uh, terminations. In order to terminate or as, uh, have an abortion, as you uh, plain speaking, um, it has to, there has to be a significant risk either to the mother or to the child. And the hospital found that. Since she could not be guaranteed that the child would be okay under any of the circumstances, she chose to take care of her own medical needs, terminate the child, even though she had a a name for the baby. She had clothes for the baby. This was a very difficult thing. It took numerous consultations with doctors, and the father was there. I mean, this was not taken lightly. And ultimately, she had the surgery, and the baby was terminated. I sued not only for her injuries, but I also made a claim for the wrongful death of the child because if it wasn't for the injuries, you would have never been in that situation. And the trial court um, dismissed my claim uh, uh, as to the death of the child, and the appellate. And we took it up to the appellate court, and the appellate court, um, in a 60-page opinion, uh, agreed with us um, and basically said that this was a foreseeable event. Uh, and... 
that's really the issue. I mean, I, I it, it's a case of first impression in Illinois, and I think it's only the second case in all of the United States. But it's really not that surprising because what this opinion really did was simply reaffirm what the law has been for years. And that is if you are negligent and an event occurs that was reasonably foreseeable, then you're liable for that event. Um, and, and here, I mean, you don't have to actually, the defendant in this case did not have to, as he's driving along saying, if I run this red light, I'm going to hit a pregnant lady and she could terminate her pregnancy. Foreseeability isn't that specific. Uh, there is hindsight that's used. In other words, after the event, you look back, is this something that's a natural and probable result? And if there's a pregnant lady in a car, is it reasonably foreseeable that if she gets into a major accident and suffers severe injuries, that due to her medical needs or the baby's needs, the pregnancy may be terminated? The answer is, of course. Um, and as the uh, another interesting aspect of this case is, again, it goes to accountability. Sure. We keep on going back to this accountability is they were actually questioning, criticizing her choice. They said she could have picked the choice that allowed her to keep the baby. I will also wage um, that if she did that and the baby was born uh, with significant congenital problems as a result of the radiation they would, exposure. They would have said she should have aborted. Exactly. Yeah. And there's always the, the, the that, that issue. Well, this case is heading to the Supreme Court now, right? Well, we'll know in September or October if the uh, Supreme Court takes it up for appeal. Uh, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I don't think it brings any novel issues. Uh, again, I think it reaffirms that if, you're wrong, if, you, if your conduct is wrongful or negligent and, and there is a intervening cause or something that happens, like here, she needed to have termination that led to the baby's death. If it was foreseeable, uh, they're liable. I mean... If, for example, when she goes to the hospital and one of the floors crumbles and crushes her and we lose the baby, that probably is outside the realm of reasonably foreseeability. Because while you can presume that something would happen to the child uh, as a result of the injuries, you don't presume that a building is going to come crashing down on someone. So, you know, you have to do some analytical thinking and look at the circumstances. Is this event, this result, something that is a natural and probable, reasonable consequence of one's negligence? Well, it would seem to me, though, that no matter what the cause of the injury to the, to the mother, whether it was an auto accident, a falling uh, floor, that the consequential damage of having the child having to be aborted does it really matter what the cause of the uh, of the actual injury was to the mother? It would seem to me that that if if the mother is injured and she's pregnant and she has to make that choice, that that that's a consequential. Well, obviously the Supreme Court's going to talk about that, but that's the consequential damage that needs to be uh, dealt with. Well, yes and no, because there's two requirements mm -hmm. for causation. It's not only causation in fact; it's legal causation. Causation in fact is but for she would have never been in the hospital, mm -hmm. never had termination. But you also have to have the reasonableness. Is this something that naturally occurred? And and the answer would be here, yes. Uh, but for example, let's say that she only broke her finger. Mm -hmm. 
would it be reasonable for her to terminate that pregnancy for a broken finger? No. No, I would say no. I would say if the pelvis was fractured and that area of the body was affected and all of those issues you talked about with the x-rays, et cetera, whether it was from a floor falling or from a, an auto accident, that would seem at, in that realm of, of injury that it may not matter what the cause of the injury well, was. Well, yes, correct? it would because okay. one could clearly say that the reason she had the termination were the medical considerations directly related to the injury she suffered in the accident. If a floor comes caving down, that's not related to anything of the accident or of her injuries. It's related to someone else's negligence or the failure to properly construct the building. It must be related to the original act. And if a building falls down, that's really considered a superseding cause that had really nothing to do with the original act that brought her into the hospital. So could this could could this case change other other cases going forward? Yes and no. I mean, we do have now an appellate court decision uh, with by Judge Judge Gordon, who's a extremely distinguished appellate judge. Uh, but again, I think if you look at it, it just simply reaffirms the law that you know uh, if you're negligent and and the result is something that should have been foreseeable that is not outrageously disconnected. Uh, then you're liable. So in the sense that it clarified the law and it allowed guidance to future parties, uh, but I think that it will ju- it just reaffirms what the law is, uh, foreseeability, proximate cause. Interesting. Interesting for sure. Well, we're going to be at the end of our show in about uh, two seconds, and we're here now. And uh, I'd like to thank Attorney Paul Wolf for joining us and sharing his insights uh, on the issues of accountability and some of those personal injury, uh, very interesting cases. Um, um, I was intrigued by uh, the back and forth we had. It's, uh, mm-hmm. It was really instructive. I'm, I hope our audience uh, enjoyed it as well. And if someone wants to reach you, Paul, how do they do that? They simply uh, call 312-726-6722, and they can ask for Paul Wolf. We're Mitchell Hoffman and Wolf at 221 North LaSalle, Suite 1148. That's 312-726-6722, and thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's been our pleasure, and thank you. And, uh, Don, how do we uh, reach you if they want? I'm at 312-356-2175. Well, that's great. And all of you out there, you can always reach all of the Ringler Associates or any of them at ringlerassociates.com. So be sure to go to that website. Be sure to listen to the uh, litany of radio shows we've done on Ringler Radio. I think you'll find them informative. So for now, thanks for listening. I'm Larry Cohen. Go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. 